Well, open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, this is the next to last sermon that we will have on this particular chapter. And today I want to look at just one verse, uh, one of the final verses of Stephen's speech. As he accuses his fellow Israelites with these words in verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would open our hearts to understand your word. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather with your people and sing your praise and hear the truth of Scripture. Father, help us not to be stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Teach us to submit to the Holy Spirit through this sermon and through every aspect of our lives. Be with us now. Open my mouth. Sharpen my tongue that I might speak boldly and powerfully the things concerning you and the mighty work of salvation you've done for us. We praise you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Stephen, in the closing words of his speech, lambasts his audience just a little bit, or actually quite a lot, including with these words about what terrible human beings they are. And as if to prove his point, they hear these words, and then in the next few verses they proceed to murder him, thereby showing that, yes, they are terrible people who don't submit to God. But one of the things that Stephen says in talking to them has taken on something of a life of its own. If you're in a Presbyterian church this morning, which all of us are, you may have heard of this doctrine called Calvinism. Body of teachings traced back to the 16th century reformer, a Frenchman named John Calvin, who lived in Switzerland most of his life. And he's become known for a number of teachings, including the so-called doctrine of irresistible grace. Now, in addition to being a source of terrible pickup lines, right, your name is Grace, you must be irresistible. This doctrine has been subjected to a number of fallacious critiques. One of the most powerful or meaningful of which is, comes from right here in Acts 7.51. Stephen says to his fellow Israelites that they have always resisted the Holy Spirit. Many people who don't understand the doctrine of irresistible grace read that text and say, irresistible grace is wrong. Because they did resist. And therefore, it wasn't irresistible, now was it? So we're going to dive into this a little bit more. Talk about, A, what irresistible grace really is. And then B, what Stephen was actually saying in warning them not to resist the Holy Spirit. What we'll find is that Stephen's condemnation of his fellow Israelites is not a proof text against Calvinism. It's a warning reminding us to bow to God and to circumcise 
our hearts. The point, in one sense, is not a doctrinal battle. The point is, bow to God, circumcise your heart. So let's start, though, with the faulty interpretation. Irresistible grace is simply the doctrine that at the moment of conversion, God graciously, that is, simply because He wants to, for no reason found in you, just a total act of undeserved favor, a gift that you could not have asked for or paid for, at that moment, God changes your heart from hating Him to loving Him. He takes you from spiritual death to spiritual life. And He doesn't ask your consent or your opinion, right? He doesn't tap you on the shoulder and say, excuse me, you're dead. Would you like to be alive? And if you say, no, I wouldn't, then He says, okay, you can stay dead. That's not how it works. Rather, the doctrine of irresistible grace simply means that God doesn't tap you on the shoulder and say, excuse me, you're dead. He taps you on the heart, as it were, and suddenly your heart surges into life, starts to pump blood, and you open your eyes and say, God is real. The Bible is true. Jesus actually came to earth, lived, died, rose again, and sits in heaven at the Father's right hand. Why did I never see this before? To which the Bible gives the answer, because you were dead. Dead people don't see and understand those things. That's what irresistible grace teaches. Nonetheless, within the broader Christian church, there are a number of people who don't understand this doctrine. They'd rather take the name and say, What this name signifies, what the name irresistible grace signifies is that when God wants you to shape up, when God shows you the favor of moral improvement, you have to do it. You are always going to cooperate with any grace God sends your way. Thus, if you read the Bible, you'll believe it. If you hear a sermon, you'll repent. If you get an altar call, you'll come forward and be saved. Because grace is irresistible. And if God works on you, you have no choice. You must always say yes. Now, if we boil it down to a syllogism, the people who are opposed to the doctrine of irresistible grace say something like, The doctrine of irresistible grace posits that it is totally impossible for human beings ever to resist the Holy Spirit. Premise 2. Yet Stephen asserted not only that it is possible for human beings to resist the Holy Spirit, but that Israel did it frequently. In fact, he says, always did it. Therefore, the doctrine of irresistible grace is unbiblical and factually incorrect. How do they get there? Well, their conclusion is baked into the first premise. The first premise defines irresistible grace as meaning that no one can ever do something God doesn't want. No one can ever resist the Holy Spirit. That's not the doctrine of irresistible grace. If that doctrine were true, no one would ever be able to sin. The world would be a perfect place because 
we would all do the right thing all the time. That is obviously not the case. But the doctrine of irresistible grace doesn't posit that God always irresistibly impels us to do the right thing. It posits rather that at one single moment, the moment of conversion, the moment of being born again, God reaches in and fixes your heart. And therefore, just as at the moment of your physical birth, you were not a, your mom did not yell down there and say, Hey! You want to come out now? I mean, maybe some of you actually did say that to your children. But if you said, no, I don't, your mom would have said, what? Too bad. You are coming out now. That's what being born is. You don't have a choice. You are born, like it or not. And that's what being born again is. You are born again, like it or not. There's no putting anchors in the walls of the birth canal and hanging on and saying, I'm not coming out. Forget this. God saves you unilaterally. That's all that the doctrine of irresistible grace means. Not bad pickup lines. Not faulty philosophical premises that think that there's an actual group of Christians out there who believes that It's impossible to resist the Holy Spirit ever. Nobody believes that. That's a ridiculous doctrine. Rather, irresistible grace means that at the moment of being born again, God does it. God bears you again. So what was Stephen saying then when he says you always resist the Holy Spirit? Well, he defines for us what he's saying. First of all, they're stiff-necked. You stiff-necked! What does it mean to be stiff-necked? Well, it simply means that your head can't go anywhere. You won't bow your neck. Because it's stiff. I can't look down at the ground. I can't bow. It's simply a figure of speech for saying I can't submit. In particular, if you're trying to deal with a recalcitrant animal, a horse or a cow, you're trying to put something on that animal so that it can pull a load, right? you have to slip that horse collar over its head, you have to get the yoke onto the ox, and if the thing will not cooperate, if its neck is stiff, well, it's not a good day for plowing. That's what Stephen is saying. You people will not bow your neck. Your neck is stiff. And God even talks at one point about their neck being like an iron rod. It won't bend anywhere. Now Stephen did not come up with this. The first one to call the people of God stiff-necked was God. Exodus 32, verse 9, And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. That's the divine verdict on us. 
God says that we are a stubborn bunch who don't like to submit. Some of you are bosses or managers in the workplace or spent careers doing that. Had a number of employees that might have been stiff-necked at one time or another. Some of you are in families and have a stiff-necked child or two that you're thinking of right now. Some of you are fighting with your parents about taking away the car keys. And your parents are stiff-necked. God says, when I look at the church, I see people who don't want to submit. And Stephen says it was true 1,500 years ago, and it's true now in the first century, true, true then for him. Not only are they stiff-necked, they're uncircumcised in heart. Now, circumcision, as we know, is the process of removing the foreskin off the end of the penis. You take it, you cut it off, and that was what God's people had to do. It was the rite of initiation performed on every little boy at eight days old. Now, that is applied metaphorically to the heart. Now, thankfully, the heart doesn't have any flap of skin that you can cut off. That's not what God is talking about. It's not a physical operation to circumcise your heart. It is a moral operation. To circumcise your heart is simply to attain the spiritual heart reality that circumcision signified. Moses talked about this. Deuteronomy 10, Circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be no more stiff-necked. Right? Moses already associated these two things. If you're uncircumcised in heart, your neck is stiff. You won't submit, you won't bow to God. So circumcise that heart. Moses actually promised that God would do this. Deuteronomy 30, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. Jeremiah says the same thing. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart, men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. So what is uncircumcised in heart? What is this charge? It's simply to say you are unsaved. Uncircumcised in heart means you don't have the inner spiritual reality of which circumcision is an outward visible sign. So you won't bow to God. Your neck is stiff. Your heart is not circumcised. That is, your heart is not soft towards God. It's hard. It repels and resists God. And finally, Stephen gives this third charge. You're uncircumcised. In ears. Now, again, he's not talking about removing this little flap at the bottom of the ear. To be uncircumcised in ears is to say your ears are not dedicated to God. You don't listen to what the Almighty 
tells you. You are uncircumcised in the ear. My dad calls it selective audio reception. I'm at the far end of the house. I can hear the words, dessert is served. But I can't hear the words, go pick up your room. Right. I, I can hear what I want to hear. I can filter out anything that doesn't fit what I already want to think. We human beings are good at this. Uncircumcised in ears, particularly the thing that gets filtered out when you're uncircumcised in ears is the Word of God. You can read the Bible and it sounds like a bunch of gobbledygook. You can listen to a sermon and you can look around and say, why are all these people here listening to this? This is the most ridiculous thing. I would rather go watch C-SPAN. That's what it means to be uncircumcised in ears. So what is Stephen's charge to his people? You won't bow to God. You're unbelievers. You don't listen to the word of God when it comes to you. That's his charge, which he then sums up as, you always resist the Holy Spirit. So what does he mean by saying, you always resist the Holy Spirit? Well, he goes on to... Well, he just described it, actually. The way they resisted the Spirit was the sins in which they engaged. Number one sin being idolatry. Verse 42, God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven. And then verse 43, he named some false gods. You took up the tabernacle of Moloch, the star of your god, Remphan. You worship the golden calf. Verse 41, You resisted the Holy Spirit who came to you and said, worship God. And you said, no, I'm going to worship the calf. I'm going to worship Moloch. I'm going to worship Raphan. How does that go today? The Holy Spirit comes to you and whispers in your heart, cries aloud in the pages of Scripture, the voice of the preacher, and says, worship God. And you say, I'm going to worship my bank account my vacation, my me time, my vehicle, my yard, my house, my kids, my spouse. You name it, the human heart can turn it into an idol. There are people who are obsessed with microphones. And we've got three of everybody's favorite idol right here in the room, these big televisions, how many people sacrifice all kinds of stuff to the television? Stephen says, you resisted the Spirit. That's a summary of what he went on and on about idol worship. And the other way they resisted the Spirit was by rejecting God-appointed leaders. Stellar examples being Moses, verse 39, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. And of course, Jesus, whom they also rejected and murdered, and that's the whole pointed issue between Stephen and these people. Was Jesus truly a God-appointed leader? Was the Holy Spirit resting on Jesus or not? Stephen said yes. The Sanhedrin said no. That's how they resisted the Spirit. They didn't listen to Moses. 
They didn't listen to Jesus. They didn't listen to Stephen. So what is Stephen saying? Well, he's not saying this. God is trying to save you and you're stopping Him. You're on your way down the birth canal, but you've dug in your heels. You found something to grab and you won't come out and be born again. That's not what he's talking about. The issue is not personal salvation per se. What is he saying? He's saying if you reject the means of salvation, don't expect to be saved. God sends you God-appointed leaders. If you won't listen to them, you won't be saved. God tells you to worship Him. If you won't do that, you won't be saved. In other words, he's not talking about the moment of regeneration. He's talking about one's ongoing lifestyle in a group that claims to be the people of God. Right? He's talking to people like us who would say, yeah, church people. We come to church. We do it regularly. We read the Bible at least sometimes. We listen to sermons. We know some hymns and psalms. When you're those people... What sins are you likely to commit? Well, you're likely to resist the Holy Spirit by worshiping idols, looking for satisfaction and wholeness somewhere other than Jesus. This thing will make me happy. The latest purchase, the newest job, the next child. That is a sin typical of church people to turn our hearts away from Christ and to seek satisfaction in money, shopping, and stuff. Or in pleasures, experiences, and relationships. Or in knowledge, study, and research. Or some of the other things this world has to offer. What does Stephen say? Don't do that. That's how you resist the Holy Spirit. And if you're looking to those things to make you whole, you're an idolater. You worship idols. Don't reject the prophets either. God has appointed you for salvation. You are in His people. So you need to listen to what they say. How do we reject Christ? Well, there's obviously the biggie. You stand up and say, I'm no longer a Christian. You come out on Instagram or whatever. Write a long post about how I used to believe in Jesus, but now I don't, and it's a load of hooey. That's one way to reject Jesus. But Stephen is talking about a more subtle way of rejecting Jesus. Failing to listen to His Word. Oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. Well, that's cool. When did you last read the Bible? Uh, um, Well, I went to church a few weeks ago. We don't openly repudiate it. We just sort of let it sit. And then drift away. Well, I'm... I've taken in a lot of spiritual content. I'm good for a few more months. Don't 
reject Christ. Or we can hide our light and commitment to Jesus. We're not actively denying Him, but we're also not actively affirming Him. How long would somebody have to work with you before they knew you were a Christian? How how interested are you in showing that you belong to Jesus? It's a question for all of us. Well, Stephen is also warning us to shun the typical sins of God's people, not only to submit to the Spirit, but to do it by bowing our necks. Sometimes literally, right? Sometimes you need to get in that posture of humility that exposes your neck and says, if you want to kill me, you can do it. I'm here bowing to you, making myself humble. But typically, submission is not physical. It is more a psychological act. I can be mad, angry, and upset over the providence and calling of God in my life. Or I can submit. God, why did you take my health? Why did that stoplight turn red? Why did my child do this? Why did my church do that? Why are these particular politicians doing these particular terrible things this year or last year? Why, why, why? We... You can talk to people who will say, well... One of the neighbors of this church, actually. I talked to a man who lives right next door to the church. And I said to him, do you ever go to church? Oh, yeah, I used to go to Mass every week. Well, why do you still? Oh, no, I haven't been in 20 years. Well, why not? Well, my sister lives in North Dakota, and she was a victim of a home invasion. Some robbers came in, murdered her and her four kids. I haven't been to church since. What is that? Well, that's, I won't submit to God. God allowed this terrible thing to happen, therefore I reject Him. Talked to another friend. Told me, yeah, my dad won't go to church because my mom is sick. And he's mad at God for letting her get sick. Stephen says, don't be that. Bow you next submit to the providence that God has in your life. Not because it's always a good providence, always a nice providence, but because you don't want to be stiff-necked. There's no future in shaking your fist at God and saying, God, why did you do that to me, to my loved one? We have to submit. Bow our necks. Circumcise your heart. What does that mean? Be saved. Believe that Jesus is who He said He is, that He did what He said He would do, which is to save the world. To believe is to be saved. And He comes and circumcises your heart so that you submit. Finally, unplug your ears. Our Muslim friends call us people of the book. What does that mean? Well, it means we have a responsibility to know what's in this book. We need to actually listen to what the Bible says. 
listen and you'll live. As we saw, God will circumcise your heart so that you can live. It's what Israel should have done. They should have circumcised their ears and listened to the prophets and then to Stephen when he warned them here in Acts 7. It's what the church has to do if it wants to survive. A church that stops listening to the Bible is a church that dries up and blows away. And that can be the fate of any local congregation that gets hung up on something besides the Word of God. Whether it's music, ministries of various kinds, food pantries or potlucks or helping the down and out or whatever. There's lots of good things that churches can and should be doing, but if they stop listening to the Word of God, they're, they're done. And finally, it's demanded of everyone who submits to the reign of Christ. You have to listen to Him. When we listen to Jesus, we'll live like Stephen, not like the people who stoned Him. So don't resist the Spirit. Submit to Him. When you do, you submit to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Help us not to resist Your Spirit. We ask Your forgiveness for the times that we've done so. Lord, don't let us be stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Teach us to submit. Save us, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.